Good morning, church, and another special welcome to our visitors from Temple Sinai. So glad you're here with us this morning. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to share a word here with you friends at Chevy Chase Presbyterian Church. My husband Simon and I have um, been visitors um, a good number of times since we live not far away, and so I see familiar faces. I've always gotten such a warm welcome here. Um, grateful to pastors Molly and Eric for the invitation to preach a word this morning. Two films came out last year highlighting the extraordinary life and career of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The first, RBG, was a documentary, and the second, called On the Basis of Sex, was a movie about Ginsburg's early successes. Now I know at Chevy Chase Prez, justice is your passion, so I imagine some of you have already seen these, and if you haven't, I recommend both of them highly. Both highlight an underappreciated reality that only in the last 50 years have women come to enjoy some measure of equal protection under law in this country. And full equality, regardless of sex, is still an aspiration. About a year ago, I had the privilege of hearing Justice Ginsburg offer some very poignant keynote remarks at Howard Divinity School. This was at a conference honoring the achievements of another groundbreaking figure in the struggle for civil and human rights, the Reverend Dr. Polly Murray. I'm always curious to hear who's heard of Polly Murray? Maybe one person. It was same in the morning service. So for the rest of us, it's really an honor to introduce this special person to you. Now, if you saw that movie on the basis of sex, you may have seen Polly Murray make a brief appearance. She was the African-American lawyer who helped Justice Ginsburg prepare for her first court argument. Murray sat on the board of the ACLU at the time. Polly Murray is perhaps the unsung heroine of the civil rights and women's movements. She was a lawyer, an activist, a professor of law, an Episcopal priest, and a poet. Murray faced down incredible barriers of both racial and gender discrimination to achieve awe-inspiring success. First, the University of North Carolina rejected her graduate school application because of her African heritage. She did go on, however, to earn a law degree at Howard Law School, and she graduated first in her class. So she was awarded a special valedictory fellowship, typically used for a year of study at Harvard. But then Harvard rejected her, this time because she was a woman. Murray later reflected, I didn't always know why I was facing discrimination, whether race or gender. Murray did lunch counter sit-ins here in Washington, D.C., and she challenged public segregation 
in the bus system and other places of public accommodation. She did all this in the 1940s. And by the 70s, she was among the very first class of women formally ordained by the Episcopal Church. When I heard Justice Ginsburg, she referred to Polly Murray as her senior colleague whom she loved and admired. And indeed, the legal theories that Ginsburg advanced to secure greater rights for women in this country, they had been developed earlier by Polly Murray. In the same way, the Brown versus Board of Education decision that declared segregation in public schooling unconstitutional, it used reasoning that Polly Murray had developed in a law school paper, although she never got the credit she was due. Only recently has America begun to celebrate her legacy. As a woman of color who also did not fit society's expectations for femininity or even heterosexuality, Murray lived at the intersection of many forms of unjust discrimination. So I introduce her to you today as a woman of profound faith and a champion of human rights who I believe can help guide us as we think together about building bridges of justice in our time. Would you pray with me? Gracious, loving God, we welcome your spirit to this place. God, would you speak to each one of our hearts as only you can. Amen. So we have Polly Murray as our guide. We have Polly Murray as our guide, but we also need a plan. The plan, the theological framework or set of ideas that I want to invoke to build new bridges of justice, it's a Christian theology of human rights. A theology of human rights. And more on that in just a minute. Um, but first, a little preview of where we're going there are three types of bridges that I think we need and that we can aspire to build together. The first is a bridge between oppressor and oppressed. The next is a bridge among diverse movements for justice. And a third is a bridge across the divide in the American church and perhaps the American country as a whole. So human rights as our blueprint. We all know what human rights are, but what are they exactly? Well, one answer is that they're a way of expressing the ethic of neighbor love that we hear in the gospel reading this morning. They're a set of assurances regarding how every person should be able to expect to be treated. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest command. In this command, Jesus knits together two well-known ideas from Hebrew scripture and presents them as one unified and ultimate instruction. This is the essence of our Christian duty. Love your neighbor as yourself is a reference to Leviticus 19, 
verse 18, which we heard read earlier as well. And in that passage from Leviticus, the command to love our neighbor is actually the pinnacle of an ethical vision of living justly and treating our neighbor fairly. So this greatest command of neighbor love, it means justice for our neighbor too. It assumes and incorporates justice. And this includes a principle of impartiality or fairness. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. I am the Lord. In today's legal language, we could translate impartiality to be something very close to non-discrimination. Theologian Nicholas Wolterstorff, in his seminal theory of justice, explains that respect for inherent human rights is what constitutes justice. It's the stuff of justice. He calls it primary justice, meaning that positive, constructive vision of what a just society actually looks like. So this understanding of human rights serves as our blueprint today as we imagine what bridges of justice we might build in our time. And the first is a bridge between oppressor and oppressed. A bridge between oppressor and oppressed. That principle of impartiality, we see that show up in the Gospels as well, in Christ's ministry, as he draws in everyone who was once excluded, the woman, the outcast, the sinner, and the unclean. He welcomes us all. And the Apostle Paul tells us that in Christ, we're one. Polly Murray's autobiography tells of a woman who in the face of every imaginable form of prejudice remained assured of her own worth. She did not shrink from pursuing the justice and equality that she knew every person was due. After UNC rejected her, she wrote a letter to none other than the President of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And for good measure, she wrote to his wife, Eleanor, who became her lifelong friend. At times, we need to own and assert our own worth in those situations where we might face prejudice or exclusion. Whether it's age, disability, gender, sexuality, or anything else that prompts unfair treatment, we have an opportunity to embody our human worth, to rest on the assurance of the Christ who drew everyone in and to declare that we're unconditionally worthy of love, justice, and inclusion. At other times, our work is to acknowledge the truth of an injustice in which we've participated or from which we've benefited, however unintentionally. For most of us, as white Americans, a huge part of our work is to learn the history of racial hierarchy in America, something I know this community is attentive to, even in this justice series. And this is so vital. 
We need to do deep learning about the privilege that comes from being white or having wealth or simply being part of a nation that asserts its dominance on the world stage. Whether we're the ones being wronged or the ones in the wrong, we can meet on a bridge of equal dignity and worth for all, a corrective to the systems of hierarchy and privilege that have degraded our common humanity. Whether we are oppressor or oppressed, or perhaps both in different times and places, we can meet in a spirit of humility, contrition, and steadfast assurance of our own worth and of others. To meet in this spirit is to set the stage for the grace of reconciliation. Human rights can also help us build a bridge connecting diverse movements for justice, movements for racial and gender equality, for rights of immigrants and the poor, rights of the disabled and seniors, rights of all minorities. And again, we draw on that principle of equal human worth illustrated so profoundly in Christ's ministry. We are each dear to God, and we are in this together. I'd like to read for you a passage from this book by the Archbishop Desmond Tutu to illustrate the point. He says, we're set in a delicate network of interdependence with our fellow human beings and with the rest of God's creation. In Africa, recognition of our interdependence is called Ubuntu. It's the essence of being human. It speaks of the fact that my humanity is caught up and inextricably bound up in yours. We're diminished when others are humiliated, diminished when others are oppressed, diminished when others are treated as if they were less than who they are. It has to do with what it means to be truly human and to know that you are bound up with others in a bundle of life. Holly Murray lived at this crossroads between racial and gender bias. She continually stressed the interrelated nature of all forms of oppression, insisting that movements for justice and liberation should work together. Murray was disappointed in civil rights leaders for failing to credit women's role in the movement, including, I would imagine, her own. And she was certainly disappointed by a women's movement that overlooked the needs and priorities of poor women and women of color. Murray insisted that all people's rights are equivalent and that, quote, the rights of women and the rights of African Americans are only different phases of the fundamental and indivisible issue of human rights. Through God's grace, May any injustice that we know personally make us more sensitive and not less to the injustice that we see visited on others. Let empathy and compassion move us from our own perspective to the perspective of our neighbor, 
Let us care for their well-being as much as our own. As Martin Luther King Jr. famously recognized, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And lastly, a theology of human rights can serve as a blueprint for yet another bridge, a bridge between Christian communities that think very differently from one another about the weightier matters of our faith. Human rights is a moral concept with deep roots in the scripture, both Hebrew and Christian. It reflects core values of our faith, values of love and justice and human worth. Some of our most revered leaders have lived and sacrificed their lives to uphold the dignity and rights of the vulnerable. Consider Bartolome de las Casas, who defended the rights of Native people in the Americas against colonial violence. Consider Father Oscar Romero, who pleaded for the lives of the poor in El Salvador, which were cut down at the hands of a brutal regime. And last weekend, we honored the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for his singular role in the civil rights movement. He saw that as one expression of a global human rights revolution. So we have a great cloud of witnesses to show us the way. As we explore what Christianity can teach us about human rights, we find a bridge on which to cross over to our religious siblings who may not yet embrace this idea and who may even resist it. But we have a starting point for dialogue based on shared faith. Justice Revival, the ministry where I serve, is dedicated to sharing what Christian faith can offer in support of human rights. If this interests you, I hope you'll get to know us better. Building the bridge with our, our brethren in the faith will require a spirit of humility and grace, of mercy and reconciliation. It will require the courage and generosity to extend an olive branch to a neighbor who may even feel like a foe. And on this final note, I give you once again, Polly Murray, who exemplified a spirit of reconciliation. In the very first service she celebrated as a priest, Murray preached in the chapel at University of North Carolina, which had once rejected her. In the chapel where her foremothers had been baptized as slaves, and she exemplified an otherworldly spirit of astounding grace. Speaking of, quote, the process of reconciliation after a long and painful struggle, and here she was referring to the struggle for women's ordination in the church, Murray said, and again I quote, I take very seriously the pain of those who cling to an article of faith which appears to be overtaken by history. Even as she celebrated her last great victory for justice here on earth, she urged remembering with humility 
that we each stand in judgment before God for our choices. As people of faith, we have a rich heritage of human rights, a blueprint for building bridges of justice, and a great cloud of witnesses to guide us. The way is clear, but the work remains. Let us carry it forward for Christ's sake. Amen.